0: We're back for another installment of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology special series. In this week's episode of the series, I am joined by Dr. Mar Hicks. Professor Mar Hicks is a historian of technology, gender, and labor specializing in the history of computing. Dr. Hicks's book, Programmed Inequality, published by MIT Press in 2017, investigates how Britain lost its early lead in computing by discarding the majority of their computer workers and experts simply because they were women. Dr. Hicks's current project looks at transgender citizens' interactions with the computerized systems of the British welfare state in the 20th century, and how these computerized systems determined whose bodies and identities were allowed to exist. Dr. Hicks's work studies how collective understandings of progress are defined by competing discourses of social value and economic productivity, and how technologies often hide regressive ideals while espousing revolutionary or disruptive goals. Dr. Hicks also is the co-editor of a volume on computing history called Your Computer is on Fire, published by MIT Press in 2020. Dr. Hicks runs the Digital History Lab at Illinois Tech. Hi, Mar. Hi. So, Mar, there's a lot to cover today because your work is so expansive and we have a very large topic, which is gender disparity in STEM education and women in computing. But maybe let's start off with your book, Programmed Inequality, which investigates how Britain lost its early lead in computing by discarding the majority of their computer workers and experts simply because they were women. What led you to want to write about this history?
1: Well, as it happens, you know, as it so often happens, It was an interest that sort of arose out of things that I had seen in the rest of my life. I was working as a Unix systems administrator at the time. And one of the striking things about that job was that I was working with a workforce of 20-something people who were predominantly men. However, our big bosses who are of an older generation, they were all women. And we would have these conversations about, well, isn't that funny? That's sort of the reverse of what you would expect if we have, you know, labor equity and gender equity progressing over time. And our bosses would tell us it's not that that simple. It's not a linear progression narrative. There used to be a lot more women in computing. And in fact, my mother had been a computer programmer, but I hadn't ever thought of that in terms of, historic demographic and labor shifts. And when I, you know, started seeing things around me like that, I had majored in history as an undergraduate, but then doing that work got me more interested in the history of technology and the history of computing in particular. And uh, I would have just gone and read books on it, this gendered labor flip in computing, but at the time there weren't really any books on it. So I thought maybe I would like to write one of those books. And now, as you know, there's been an explosion in scholarship in the past 10 years on uh, women in computing and on how there were a lot of women in early computing who got gradually pushed out of the field.
0: Take us back to the 1940s in England. Set the scene for us. What did the computing industry look like? Who dominated the field? And what started to happen in the 1960s? What What was that shift that you record like?
1: Yes, well, in the very early days of electronic computing and prior to computers becoming electronic when they were still electromechanical, there were a lot of women in the field. And in fact, programming and computing labor was seen as feminized. In other words, it was not just women doing the work, but it was work that was seen as sort of low skill and not very valuable. And so that's why women were being slotted into these jobs. And as computers became electronic, this labor force carried right over from doing the manual computing and the electro-mechanical computing to working on electronic computers. And this feminized workforce was the early programming labor force. And it wasn't for years, it wasn't for quite some time, that the image of the field started to change. It sort of started to be upskilled in image, if not in fact seen as more complex and more important than how it had been seen previously. And it started to professionalize. And this is the point in time when it stops being seen as feminized and as just jobs that, oh, we'll just give those jobs to women. And there is a clear labor shift. There is an attempt, in fact, to change the labor force from a feminized one to not just a male identified one, but one that is supposedly higher in status, higher in class status, higher in skill, and much more management aligned. My working
0: theory is that in general, um, work and labor is seen as feminized until people start to see money in it. Once there is money, i.e. economic value to the work, then it gets overtaken by men. Is that somewhat of what you saw? Or was it maybe the opposite that men came in and then people started to compensate those jobs economically with a kind of value that they would have never given to what's considered women's work or labor?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very astute observation. That's so often the value ascribed to the work, both in terms of how well it's remunerated And just in terms of the status it's given, doesn't have to do with the work itself. It has to do with who is doing the work. And that's very much what happened with computing, especially in the early British context. It was seen as higher status and it was better paid depending on who was doing it. In fact, as I talk about in one of the early chapters of my book, early computing was seen as so feminized and so de skilled in a sense that there was this class of workers, women workers in the British government called the machine grades. And they were doing you know, all of this computing and um, they were a women's only class. What that meant was that they were paid according to particular pay scales that were lower than men's pay scales. And when equal pay for the civil service was brought in, the British government managed to not give the majority of women working in the civil service equal pay because they were concentrated in these feminized labor classes like the machine grades. And so what they said, the British government said, well, yes, you know, we could equalize the pay of the machine grades to the men's, grade, the men's pay scales in these grades, but we pretty much never use those pay scales because it's all women. So in fact, the market rate for these jobs is in fact the women's pay scales. And so they didn't end up getting equal pay. And um, that's just, I think, a really good example of what you pointed out, how so much it's about who's doing the work, not that the work has some kind of intrinsic value. And so the machine grades and the rest of those women's grades after equal pay, they became known as the excluded grades because they were excluded from the provisions of the uh, government's Equal Pay Act for the civil service, which is kind of an amazing, you know, (laughs) it's kind of an amazing way of thinking about equal pay, right? That you can somehow have equal pay without, in fact, raising women's depressed wages, because you can simply say, well, that's the way it's always been. So now that's what the market will bear. Was this a particularly
0: British phenomenon or was a story that might have been similar playing out elsewhere? Is the United States path, which includes mail-run computing that ended up dominating the latter half of the 20th century through the 21st century, is that the same narrative as the British narrative that you just articulated or is this a different narrative? Are they parallel? Are they even interwoven histories? Did they mutually become constitutive of one another?
1: Yeah, they're interwoven in a lot of important ways that you can delve into more in the book. But one thing that I'll just mention here is that I often get the question regarding um, the, the outcomes and the way that gendered labor discrimination negatively affected the British computing industry. I often get the question, well, there was just as much sexism and racism in the U.S. context so why didn't the U.S. then have those same negative outcomes if, you know, treating these labor forces in a sexist and racist way creates poor outcomes? And the answer for that is, is twofold. The first is that, well, there was a much, much, much bigger labor force in the United States due to the overwhelmingly larger population, and these were relatively small fields on both sides of the Atlantic at this point in time. Early computing wasn't a huge field. So when you have a much uh, larger labor force to draw from, there's much more slop in the system and you can get away with a lot more discrimination for a lot longer without your chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. But then the other part of that answer is that in fact, if you you read Margot Shetterly's brilliant book, Hidden Figures, you'll see that the US was being affected by the way that it was discriminating against workers. The reason that so many of the hidden figures were impelled into the NASA workforce at the time that they were was because we were fighting a technological proxy war, the space race, and we were losing. We were losing all the early stages of the space race to the Russians. And so these black women who otherwise would have been, you know, they were not allowed to fulfill their full potential, even in the jobs that they got, but they would have been able to do far less given the racism, the sexism at the time in the United States, had it not been for this desperate need for labor and very skilled, talented labor on NASA's part. And that's why, for instance, the folks, the Black women that Margot Shetterly talks about, they're so instrumental and they're so important to the space race in the U.S. So I'm
0: curious, as a historian, I imagine that a lot of the work that you do is thinking about articulating the history with an eye toward also thinking about the utility and the application of that history for the present. So what are some of the conclusions that you were able to draw from the history that you looked at about what we might need to do now to move to a more equitable, and I should say gender equitable and also racially equitable future of technological production?
1: Yeah, well, one of the reasons that I'm interested in the kinds of histories that I, I write is because I do think that history is important, not just in terms of telling us about the past, but in terms of helping us figure out our present and where we can go in the future. And that's why I think that, you know, failure stories, depressing though they may be, are really important. And one of the takeaways that I think that we get from histories of computing that are not these teleological progress narratives is that so much of what we see happening and so much of what we see being accorded accolades in the history of computing, and this this goes for any sort of engineering field or any sort of field where we have narratives of great men and sometimes great women, is that these are not examples of meritocracy in action. And this fiction of meritocracy pervades a lot of our history. It pervades a lot of the institutional history of computing and histories of business and histories of how people have you know made certain achievements or innovations when we use this idea of meritocracy to structure our understanding of what's happened in the past we fundamentally misunderstand how change occurs and we fundamentally misunderstand all the systems at play that are privileging people in certain ways and that are in fact even giving credit to a lot of people who maybe don't deserve the credit for the accomplishments that you know they're being credited with. And once we start to unpack that and also get more comfortable with failure narratives and learning from failure narratives, not just focusing on success stories, I think we can start to, if not come up with specific conclusions about you know, things we have to fix, and I think we can come up with some specific conclusions, but we can more generally start to learn how systems work, how to interrogate these systems, and then figure out, okay, what are the specific things that we need to fix? And just to give you one example, I think one of the specific things we see, for instance, in the United States and the UK that we really badly need to fix is the question of ethics in computing. And particularly in computing professions where people are building infrastructures that are going to really affect society, you know, just really affect broad swaths of not just the people in that country, but around the globe. There needs to be a really robust emphasis on ethics and history and understanding of political and social change in educating these individuals. And then we also need things like structures of regulation to make sure that companies comply with all of the sorts of, you know, ethical frameworks that, for instance, young engineers in training are being taught.
0: I mean, I think about what you're just saying in terms of creating a more ethical system of production and a curriculum and a knowledge kind of foundation in order to build toward that. I wonder if you could define and, and talk a little bit more about a term that you use, which is the term teleological progress narrative, because I think that that's one of the more, I think, insidious forms of narrative that actually works against a kind of ethic of technological production. So I wonder if you could talk about that term, teleological progress narrative. What is a teleological progress narrative and why are they so perhaps you know, dangerous or insidious?
1: Well, I'm using that phrase to mean a narrative, which essentially takes an endpoint where, uh, let's say, a particular innovation has flourished in society and says, "Okay, well, this was uh, a great innovation. Let's look backward in time and explain how that came about. Now, a lot of the history of technology and the history of computing in particular is told in exactly that fashion. We see something in the present that is working well, and then we go back and we tell the story. We essentially have only a framework where we can understand or talk about narratives where things turn out okay. In fact, narratives where we're talking about um, advancements, achievements, progress. Well, when we do that, what that tends to do is cleave away all of the other things that don't turn out so well, And it makes it very hard for us to understand, in fact, where we went wrong and where we continue to go wrong when we're telling these kinds of progress narratives. Now, that's not to say that we can't learn from progress narratives, but if that is the main way that we are learning history, we are leaving so much out. In fact, we're leaving out the majority of available cases that we could study to understand the world around us and the infrastructures that structure that world. Yeah, I mean,
0: the other thing that came to mind for me when you're talking about this is that teleological progress narratives necessarily take the particular moment in time that we are in and read the technology uh, as a success story if it's successful in that period of time. So I'm reminded, for example, of the way that Facebook was championed in the 2010s in the context of the Arab Spring as reinvigorating a democratic movement of course by 2016 the very same platform that reinvigorated a anti-democratic movement in the middle east and an anti-democratic movement in the united states so this teleology seems to me to be pretty dangerous because it doesn't look at the technology for what it is you could say i suppose a similar thing for twitter which amplified and you know promoted itself as a kind of democratic space for taking down hierarchies of representation Of course, that turned out not to be the case for women and for people of color who routinely uh, and continue to be routinely and disproportionately bullied on those cyber platforms. So those teleologies and the narratives of progress seem to come together in a kind of really unhealthy way in these kinds of contexts.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You put it um, better than I could have that even though people who sometimes write histories that are about failure narratives, or are telling people how things, you know, went wrong. Even though we're sometimes accused of being downers, certainly, or sometimes uh, accused of looking at the past in a presentist way. In fact, the same could be said, even more so, for these progress narratives, because, as you point out, they take a particular moment in time. And then they just kind of use that to shed light on the past in a way that sort of predetermines what that history can actually be about. Because if you look at the present, you say, look, this is a success, then your history is not going to be able to tell any story that conflicts with it. In order to tell a truer story, and as you point out, a story that's really more about how the technology actually works, you have to get comfortable with some uncomfortable questions. And you have to get comfortable with failure being a hugely important part of history of technology. Because for the most part, a lot of history is about, it's about failures and overcoming those failures, certainly. But there are a lot more stories that are about, you know, muddling around uh, and not being able to come up with a neat narrative of success then there are stories that are you know very triumphant and and all about how it's onward and upward
0: i mean i'm fascinated by these progress narratives when i talk about technological utopianism i oftentimes talk about it in the context of silicon valley as a continuation of a particularly american stream of thinking about california specifically and more broadly the american west as a mythological kind of utopian space for revolution and the realizing of these kind of paradisical ideals Deeply inscribed by narratives about California, which are embedded in the American imaginary from east of Eden to the promise of California in the gold rush, to the land of promise with streets paved of gold, way back to the idea of California as a space in which the American frontier could be realized in the form of manifest destiny. And of course, in each of these narratives, the revolutionary or disruptive goals also have deeply unsavory underbellies, ecological destruction. The violence and atrocities committed against Native peoples, for example, just to name two. But of course, technological utopianism and this myth of progress and its often destructive consequences far predates Silicon Valley or the American context. I think, for example, of the British context, the uh, Frankenstein's monster, it's a myth of enchantment with technology and disenchantment with technology what other histories beyond the American context or what other key cases should we think about when we think about the failed promise or the regressive underbelly of technological utopianism? What about the British case specifically?
1: There are an awful lot of stories, you know, not only as you point out in the US and the British context, but also globally that are really important for our understanding of technological change. And I would like to, you know, use the term technological change more than technological progress, because that's as we're, you know, starting to get to a much more honest way of talking about what's going on. And one of the things that I would like to just point out at this juncture is that when we're talking about technology, so much of what we're talking about is power and domination. And when we insert that more clearly into our narratives of high tech, then we can understand how even when things turn out to maybe have a happy ending or they turn out to do things that seem progressive, there's almost always a a losing party. There's almost always a group of people who are being subject to the will of the people who are in charge of deploying that technology. So, you know, just to give an example from the British context, when earlier on in the uh, computing era, when the British are doing pretty well, let's take it back really uh, to the beginning of electronic computing. The earliest electronic computers that were used to, you know, do something in the real world, they were used for code breaking and they were used essentially as weapons of war. They were instruments of defense, but also instruments of warfaring. They were the earliest instance of cyber warfare, essentially. And these code-breaking computers at Bletchley Park, while you can say, oh, look at all the lives they saved and how they, you know, helped turn World War II in favor of the Allies. Well, that's also completely tied up in a narrative about, you know, power and warfare and domination. And of course, after World War II, The British see computing as so important as an industry, so important to their national project because they have lost or are in the process of losing their empire, their imperial territories that they have gone around the world, you know, dominating and injuring other countries and people in order to extract goods and resources and as their you know brutal imperial end starts to come to an end and more and more countries assert their independence one of the things that the british think they can do is to use computers as a lever to have sort of an empire 2.0 so they see for instance mainframe computers which grew out of warfare and the aims and goals of the state in a very real way They see these as potential tools for another type of political domination. So I think that, yeah, it's definitely always something that we have to keep in mind that technologies are not just about efficiency or convenience. They are fundamentally about concentrating power in the hands of the people who are going to be deploying those technologies. Something else that you talk about in your
0: book, and I'll quote you here, is how, quote, the British case is a parable of how nations can modernize in ways that are not merely uneven, but that actively reconstitute categories of social inequality. Is that what you're talking about in the case that you just gave? Are there other cases in the context of British society that you think are important to mention or to include in that way of thinking about tech?
1: Yeah, I think this, uh, what might be called um, neo imperial strain in the history of computing, is definitely one way we can see categories of inequality becoming reconstituted in a new technological regime. But when I wrote that in the book, what I was talking about in particular in that instance was the way that the British government, British industry, even British society as a whole felt that these machines were going to make things better in a lot of senses. But there were always critics who were saying, no, this is potentially going to lead to, for instance, loss of jobs. This is going to lead to, you know, maybe a more inhumane system of bureaucracy. And then another thing that it led to was a revivification of certain kinds of labor discrimination according to gender and class that was completely counterproductive to the ends and goals of the computing industry in the British state. But it happened anyway, because the focus was on maintaining certain hierarchies of power and certain ways of doing things that were considered to be the right way of doing things. And by that, I mean that certain people were supposed to be in charge and making the decisions and that that wasn't supposed to change because to change that would have been seen as chaos and decline.
0: I'm reminded of something else you say, which is that oftentimes tech ends up reconstituting not only categories of inequality, but also hiding regressive ideals, oftentimes masked as very progressive ideals. I'll give you an example of something that came to mind for me when I read that, which is the ongoing conversation right now around NFTs. NFT non-fungible tokens in the eyes of the kind of utopian vision of that allows individual creators to retain ownership over their creation or empowers individual creators in an era where many of the creative activities are run by big conglomerates, of course. I think about NFTs and I say, you know, that was the kind of idealism around Web 2.0. It sounds almost identical in Web 3.0 around NFTs. And in fact, it's actually not a utopian ideal. It's a fairly regressive ideal about reducing art to property, reducing property to its market value and not returning the appreciation for the artistic product itself as a form of value in and of itself. So in actuality, I think this kind of like utopian ideal around NFTs is actually deeply regressive and deeply conservative in that sense. What kind of cases were you thinking about when you wrote that tech thinking can actually use this kind of language to hide regressive ideals?
1: Well, one of the things that you see again and again in the history of technology, and I'm I'm thinking about your example of NFTs, is the way that again and again, we have tech bubbles, right? So there was the first internet bubble, which a lot of people became incredibly wealthy off of. And then of course, the bubble bursts. And there was, you know, the housing bubble, which burst in 2008, causing you know, global economic destruction. And one of the things that I think we're seeing with, uh, with so many iterations of the, uh, the techno-utopian dream or, you know, the next new thing, and we're seeing it with NFTs for sure, is that if people can manipulate uh, markets and use a technological advance to try to make short-term profits for the few who are able to, you know, get in and and make those profits, then they will do that and they will do that at the expense of uh, everyone else. They will do it at the destruction of uh, communal resources, the destruction of the environment, the destruction of labor laws in the case of, you know, the gig economy, for instance. And that's something that we see going back through history for a very long time. I wanted to touch on that term you used just now, which is a techno-utopianism.
0: It's something that you talk about in your book, The Computer Is On Fire. What is techno-utopianism? How does techno-utopianism perceive the relationship of technology and people? Do they work in symbiosis with one another or are they in tension with one another?
1: I think that they're definitely in tension and I'll explain why. So the book that you referred to, Your Computer Is On Fire, which I wrote and collected the essays in it with my uh, three co-authors. It's all about the ways that things go wrong, sometimes unintentionally. And then sometimes we can see how the designs of these systems from the start were really problematic. And I'm thinking of one of the co-editors of that book, uh, Kavita Philip, who also has an essay in the book called The Internet Will Be Decolonized. She has this great line, and I'm I'm thinking about it because I was recently using it in in a talk. She said, We need stories that showcase the irreducibly political realities that make up the global internet, the continual human labor, the mountains of matter displaced, its diverse material and representational habitats. Acknowledging that the political and the digital cannot be separated might serve as an antidote to the seductive ideals of technological designs untouched by the messiness of the real world. And that last part, untouched by the messiness of the real world, that's the crux of these techno-utopian ideals. Now, of course, utopian ideals, they're great as long as they stay ideals. The minute you try to institute them, then you have to cleave away all the messiness of the real world or bulldoze over anybody who gets in the way of this very black and white and sort of simplistic utopian idea. And when you start doing that, of course, it's no longer a utopia, it's a dystopia. And so there's a reason, right, that the the root of the word utopia comes from the, you know, it means no place is not something that can exist without, in fact, doing destruction to anything that currently exists. Can you give us an example of a techno-utopian ideal
0: that was enacted in the world with what you think of as disastrous results that had maybe a good ideal attached to them, but in actuality turned out to be
1: pretty hazardous? Well, just off the top of my head, you know, I'm thinking about, since I'm a labor historian, I'm thinking about what we call the gig economy, or what was earlier on in a very interesting sleight of hand of PR for the tech industry called the sharing economy. And the idea behind this was that there would be apps that reduced the friction between consumers and people who could provide services for those consumers so that people could, you know, get those services at a lower cost and much more easily. So take ride-sharing apps, for instance. In reality, what happened, and in fact, what was mm, sort of the goal from the start, and uh, at least in terms of the people who were running these companies, was that these business models did an end run around existing labor laws. And so workers who were working for the companies as what were called um, contractors, even if they were driving Uber, for instance, full-time, they were just seen as independent contractors. It insulated the company from any responsibility and it simultaneously made it much easier for them to flout labor laws. Things like fair pay, things like minimum wage, things like ensuring that workers had breaks or were not working 24-hour stretches and so on. And so this meant that, you know, we had an idea that maybe looked good on paper, that once it starts gaining traction in the real world, starts doing an awful lot of damage and starts, for instance, destroying like, you know, the taxi cab industry in major cities like New York and making it impossible for people who actually had made their living off livery, off driving people around to continue to make a living. And I think you've probably heard of, you know, all of the suicides of of taxi drivers who were unable to pay their debts or or continue to pay for their medallions as a result of the rideshare industry disrupting the taxicab industry. And when we look at that, and we look at the outcomes for not just the riders, but specifically the drivers, and we look at how negative, you know, we're seeing how negative those outcomes are at this point. And we're seeing the larger negative outcomes of disruption that the industry caused, you know, I think we see a pretty clear example of the, well, here's a good idea that, you know, seems kind of um, utopian, let's see if we can implement it. Oh, we can't really implement it without really doing a lot of stuff that doesn't really work with existing systems. Oh, we'll do it anyway. And then, you know, within a few years, you have a lot of negative consequences that were either intentional or unintentional.
0: I'm thinking now of Dan Lyons' brilliant and aptly titled book, How Silicon Valley Ruined Work for the Rest of Us. And it makes me think that this is something that started off in Silicon Valley. It's something that started off in tech culture. But of course, the taxi industry is not tech culture. It is something that is disrupted by technological culture with the impact reverberating far beyond that. I mean, we are both in academia. And... The gig economy is alive and very well in academia, with tenure-track jobs increasingly being taken over by members of the gig economy uh, adjuncts. It's an extraordinarily grotesque situation in academia that I think is not unlike the situation in taxi industry, where people have paid oftentimes a great expense to be able to become a academic worker, as the taxi cab workers have also invested very greatly, and then are increasingly discovering that they are marginalized within that community and unable to find stable employment. Now, this is a particular problem, I think, when technological cultures or some of the utopianism in technological culture and some of the ability for technological culture to move fast and break things, disrupt with an extraordinary amount of speed, meets a deeply capitalistic culture rewards people for wanting to work all the time, also premised on a context in the United States where essentially labor ought to be considered in the context of United States history, many think, free, right? The premise of this country is that labor should be free or as close to free as possible. And so what you wind up with is a context where you've moved fast and broken things, again, a premise of Silicon Valley utopianism, built into an idea of capitalism that pays workers as close to as little as possible with the expectation that if you're really doing what you love, then you want to work as much as possible. Something that both academia and the gig economy deeply exploits. So we're in this kind of deeply exploitative situation. And I guess I wanted to ask you how much of this is Silicon Valley utopianism and disruption, and how much of this is just basic structures of Western capitalism?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. So much of Silicon Valley and, you know, the uniquely American success story of Silicon Valley, it's just the American dream warmed over. And the American dream, as he points out, while it worked out for specific groups of people at a specific set of historical moments in U.S. history, it was always a very deeply problematic, a very deeply racist, a very deeply gendered and sexist idea or ideal. And so much of it was predicated on hard work, but hard work within a capitalist system that was fundamentally stacked against particular groups of people. And more and more we see it's fundamentally stacked against workers in general at this point in time, as we've reached a moment where, for instance, there are not strong labor unions and there are not strong labor protections that are being enforced in a lot of industries. So yeah, I think it's totally fair to say well, we can't blame technology for all our ills. Quite right. But as I think you also implied, one of the things that we're seeing here is this perfect storm almost of American-style extractive capitalism with American-style extractive technology. They're working hand in glove and it's really accelerating a lot of the negative patterns and trends and it's heightening a lot of the power differences and exacerbating a lot of the discrimination that was already present. And that I would say over the course of the 20th century, we were at least politically trying to work to undo to a certain extent, or I should say more exactly that certain oppressed groups in American society were working very hard and to an extent having success undoing some of the long standing discrimination in the United States.
0: I wanted to ask you specifically about the context of sexism in that long standing history of discrimination and in that perfect storm because in the book your computer is on fire you talk about the fact that sexism is not as a not a bug in the system but actually a feature of that system. What do you mean by that?
1: What I mean when I Title my chapter in uh, Your Computer is on Fire, Sexism is a Feature, Not a Bug, is that sexism is not working within the systems I describe in a way that it's not supposed to. In other words, it's actually an integral part of the labor systems or the, the labor that is being provided for these systems of computing and so it's not a bug it's not just something that once people recognize it as oh that's discriminatory okay that's a bug we'll we'll fix it no it's actually an important part of how the system works i guess i wanted to tie that back to
0: your previous book the postwar context of computing in england because you referenced how the times of london in 1970 uh, simply but very effectively stated computers need people and I'm curious, as a scholar who is deeply invested in the study of technology, gender, and modern Europe, what history does that point us to? Why is it that computers need people? And have we met that call to action? And how can we think about the context of gender in that statement and in that idea that computers need people?
1: When we take that insight and we start to think about the role of gender, in how computers need people, for instance. Well, think about all of the free labor that let's say women, for instance, provide throughout all of US society, even when we're not talking about computing. Think about how much unpaid, unremunerated labor goes into running a typical household and who does that labor and the expectations, particularly during the pandemic, the expectations for people who are going to be working from home while raising children. And when we think about that, we can see there's a blueprint for certain ways that expectations are higher for particular groups than other groups. And that carries over into our computing infrastructures. We were talking about the gig economy before. One of the things that was said early on was Oh, how wonderful will these tools be for women, for instance, who have to you know pick up their kids from school or go shopping groceries, and in between they can squeeze in some work they can you know squeeze in some gig economy work well, I think that you know on the face of it, that sounds pretty good, but when you look at what the companies does. well you know when maybe it doesn't um but when you look at what the companies were doing, even, you know, at the same time that they were saying these things, it was, you know, it was just a cynical way of taking labor from people who oftentimes weren't used to being paid at all for what they were were doing, or were used to being paid less, and then saying, look, we'll give you maybe a few dollars more. And that is something that, you know, goes back, unfortunately, pretty far in the past. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the history of, um, you know, women in computing. And I was mentioning a case where there was a woman who was pretty high up at IBM early on, and she was actually at a level where she was starting to manage people. She was managing men, in fact. And at a certain point, she found out that she was being paid less than half, I believe it was, of what her male employees were being paid. Yeah. And
0: the surprise ending was not a surprise to anybody who is watching the news and knows that across industries, this is consistently discovered to be the case when it is discovered. But, you know, what made me laugh in your comment that people were very, uh, I think, uh, utopian about the idea that people could fit in women in particular, could fit in an extra call uh, in the middle of their childcare duties, is this idea that we can seamlessly and endlessly give out labor, that there is an no end or no bottom to the depth of Labor that we can give, and that if we somehow are given extra time by a computer convenience, then it somehow frees up extra labor to be able to do something else. I mean, this will. Probably be something that I cut, and if I don't cut it, then I'll give an extra pause so that it can be something <laughs> that that uh, can be soundbited in, you know. But our university is currently switching to a semester system, and right now we teach a three-three-three load on quarters. The geniuses in our administration have said, "Well, why not now with the semester give a four-four load?" Uh, for teaching, because that's one less class. And I have to remind them that my time is not endlessly elastic, that the amount of labor I'm capable of doing is not tied to how many projects I have to accomplish overall, but how much time I have per week. To devote to things and that a four, four, even if it's one less class, it does not reduce the amount of students that I have at one particular time or the, the amount of emails that I get at one particular time, the amount of assignments that I have to get increases them. And so, this idea, and you can end this part that maybe we'll cut out, but the idea that a woman's labor is now in the capacity to be escalated simply because of a computing convenience does not at all. I think, identify what the source of labor really is tied to, which is not necessarily the convenience of something, but the amount of time and the amount of energy we have to devote to something, which is not endless and which is not in many ways mitigated by more expedited computing processes. In fact, I think that these computing processes are oftentimes ways to offload extra labor by, for example, administrators in a number of industries back on to the laborer who then has to account for the kinds of computing practices that would have ordinarily been done by an administrative person.
1: That really reminds me of one of the examples that I talk about in the chapter in Your Computer is on Fire, where there's this great photo that I was given that shows a woman who is working from home. She's programming from home while her young child, you know, her baby, who kind of is just uh, able to stand, is looking up, looking on as she's doing her programming work. And so she's taking care of kid while doing her job as a programmer. And the work that she's doing in that instance is actually programming the black box for the Concorde, you know, to date the world's only supersonic passenger civilian um, jet. So a hugely important high-tech project of the 20th century, and she's doing it while she's simultaneously taking care of her child. And on the one hand, this is sort of a triumph in a sense, because she didn't get forced out completely of the workforce. She was allowed by this feminist software startup, actually in the 1960s, to work from home and to continue her career, fulfill her potential as a technical worker and mind her children, watch her children, care for them at the same time. But of course, as you point out, it's kind of a paradox because that means that essentially you're parallel processing, you're doing two jobs at the same time and you still only have one CPU, figuratively speaking.
0: To go back to your book, your computer is on fire. Your your colleague and your co-editor Kavita Philip, who you mentioned earlier, very eloquently ends with uh, the last chapter, answering what the alternative she proposes to the Silicon Valley uh, maxim to move fast and break things. And she proposes that alternative as the following. And I'm going to quote it at length. What we can tell you is that language, history, and politics matter. We can tell you what we think matters. And then it's up to you, to us, to build this conversation and practice together. To navigate the complexities of power, we should pin our hopes not on an axiomatic rule-based ethics, not on the hopes of finding value-neutral data. We should look instead to the conversations we need to make among technologists, political theorists, activists, and academics. And so this revolution comes in conversation and exchange. How do you think about the practicalities of that conversation being played out in exchange? What needs to happen in order for us to build that kind of conversation, in order to create this kind of more complex understanding, more robust understanding of what it is that we do when we innovate?
1: Well, I think what's required there is a highly educated democratic society, and a society that, uh, you know, really is democratic, in which people do have Equal access to the ballot at minimum, and then from there have equal access to the things that they would need to, for instance, go after life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, I like the way you said, uh, in paraphrasing uh, Kavita Philip, Doctor Philip, that we have to focus really more on what matters, not just what's profitable, not just what's easiest, not just what's most convenient. We have to focus on what is good, we have to focus on what is fair and just. And you know, if we saw, let's just say a person going through life only doing what was easiest, what was most doable at the time, what allowed them to get the most short term gain, even if it caused problems down the line, or problems for those around them, we would say, Well, that person's really, you know, not a good person. They're really problematic. We would stay away from that person. Yet, as you point out, our particular style of capitalism in the U.S. means that when an entire industry does that, it's actually seen as really um, terrific. And it um, produces a lot of profit for people who then want to see it produce even more. And they want to support and invest that industry, even though what it's doing might not be the stuff that really is the stuff we want to see happen in the world. It might be causing a lot of harm to systems that are external to it or to the systems that it has to interact with and the people who are part of all of those systems. You stated before that if you were to give a
0: catchphrase to describe the kind of moment we're in right now, it would be a moment of resistance and maybe
1: even a computing revolution. How so? Well, I guess that's my attempt to maybe be a little bit optimistic, to say that, well, we can make change. We are not just rolling through time as, um, you know, kind of people who are being washed through history and we don't have any agency. We do have agency, and one of the things that we've been seeing with all of the labor unrest during the pandemic in particular is that once people take back their power and they assert their rights, that we can get things done. One of the things that is, you know, I don't want to say a silver lining to the current moment we're in where we see so much going wrong with um, high tech in particular but maybe at least could be perhaps molded into something useful, is that so many people are now becoming aware of the ways that these large technological systems were externalizing a lot of costs onto a lot of other groups. And they were making problems. They were creating new problems just as they were solving old problems. And once you have a level of awareness in public discourse, there are these problems in an agreement that these things are bad and we should try to solve them. That's one of the first steps to starting to fix these really, really difficult problems. It's just the first step. We've got a long way to go. We'll need more For instance, labor organization will need more pushes to, you know, democratically control some of these out-of-control industries through regulation and other means. It's heartening to me, though, that we're seeing some of that. We are seeing labor pushback. We are seeing on a state level, in several states, for instance, that surveillance technologies have been banned, that certain types of facial recognition technologies have been banned. Those are steps in a direction that leads me to believe we might be on a a path towards positive change. And by positive change, I mean an attention to what is fair, what's just, what is going to set us up as a society, a democratic society, hopefully, for long-term success, not just short-term profit. The context
0: for this series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanistic driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do you see that the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition playing or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what we do
1: when we envision design and create technologies? Well, I think that, you know, we, Talk about technologies a lot of times as being infrastructural. You know, we have very basic types of, um, you know, physical technologies that form our infrastructures, bridges, roadways. We have somewhat more high tech forms of um, infrastructure, like our um, communications infrastructures, like what we're using to talk today. And so we're very used to thinking about. Technologies and all of the products of STEM fields as useful and as foundational to our society. And they are, they definitely are. But they're only useful and foundational within the context of a functioning society that has people who want to live in it. And that context is created by all of the fields that come from outside the STEM disciplines. Things like history, things like literature, art, languages, all of these are also infrastructures. They're infrastructures maybe not of the physical world, but of our social and cultural world. And critically, they're important infrastructure for our political systems. And once that infrastructure is no longer tended to, we see what happens our political systems start to collapse and once our political systems start to collapse everything else does as well the story of the pandemic is first and foremost a story of political collapse that led to essentially a social collapse and a really really deadly pandemic that you know would not have happened in the way that it has happened If it were not for the fact that in the United States in particular, there was a complete inattention and a lack of care for democratic institutions and for what our institutions of government were supposed to be doing and supposed to be protecting us from.
0: Last question. This series, of which this episode is a part, is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you would want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? One core
1: lesson would be that although we are all little cogs in much larger systems, that doesn't mean that we don't have power. And it doesn't mean that our beliefs and our own ethical codes somehow don't matter or that we should give them up in service of the system that we're enmeshed in, if that system is telling us to do something that we don't think is right. If nothing else, even if you're just one individual, you can still always be a spanner in the works or in, an American, a monkey wrench in, in the system. If all you can do is just even slow down that disaster train slightly, then do it. And and that means something. That might mean that, you know, a few less people get hurt or killed or the, you know, the level of destruction is is slightly lower. Now, if you can go beyond that and you can get together with your coworkers, your community with your peers in multiple senses and you can start to build power as a group that's even better that's even more important but I think one of the most important lessons for for me as a person and that I try to convey to my students is that history doesn't happen to you you are still a part of it you have agency and there is a fine line between Understanding that you're part of systems that came before you and that will continue long after you're dead and becoming completely fatalistic, apathetic. Maybe the core lesson I'd like to convey is that not only do your ethics matter, but they do have power if you try to enact them. Thank you very much, Mar. Thank you for having me.
0: The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Bro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.